As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me today for this Americans in Action episode are two friends. Up first, a man who knows his floodlights. It's Graham Ruthven. Hi, Graham. <laughs> it seems that I do. That might mm-hmm. be a specialist subject that I wasn't aware of <laughs> until I took that Guardian quiz that you're referring to. Ryan Bailey, might I add, got 16 out of 20. I got 18 out of 20. Suck it, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> First of all, uh, that that is that is a perfect invitation. Thank you for starting off on a on a lovely note of mocking Ryan Bailey, as is appropriate. Graham, how many of those stadiums have you been to, or was that a lot of sort of intuitive guessing? Um, not a not a huge amount. I mean, there was a few Scottish ones in there that I've, I think I've been to every senior Scottish league ground. I think until Bonnie Rigg. Rose joined the league structure this season. I've not been there yet, but I, the Scottish ones were easy. And then a lot of the. A lot of the guesswork just was de- um, dependent on kind of like working out why would Union Berlin be in this selection of grounds that includes Brighton <laughs> right. and Rotherham. So I'm going to go with Union Berlin. That feels like the odd one out. And then it's Union Berlin. So there was a little bit of guesswork on a few. But yeah, it just it seems like I know floodlights, which was a surprise to me. There we are. Well, joining us on this episode is another fan of electrical illumination. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. At least I assume you are. Or do you hate uh, unnatural lighting? No, I, I do like unnatural light. I also like natural okay. light. I like all different kinds of lights, lights you saw in all sorts of different sources. <laughs> I did not take this Guardian quiz, partly because oh, I was worry, busy Joe. this morning, but also mm-hmm. partly because I do not think I would do very well at all. Well, Joe, as Graham said, he got 18 out of 20. Ryan got 16 out of 20. I also got a score. We'll leave it at that. Joe, you <laughs> yeah. haven't taken the quiz, as you said. We're going to give you a version here live on oh, air, good. and I want to make good. sure that you are smarter than both Graham and Ryan. Okay. Uh, this one will be much harder. I, I should uh, clarify up front. But Joe, here we go. Joe, does Old Trafford have lights? Uh, I'm going to say they have at least some form of light at somewhere in that stadium. Final answer, yes. That is correct. Does Stamford yes. Bridge have lights? Um, this one is tough. This one is tough. Tommy Tuchel is out there. He's on an angry streak. Maybe he's breaking some. Now they have lights, too. They do okay. have lights. All right. Two for two so far. Uh, what about the Camp New? 
Um, honestly, at this point, I, I can't confirm that they're going to be called lights anymore. <laughs> Maybe like Spotify illumination pads or something along yeah. those lines. But they do have what we would call light. Yes. If they have lights, they're, they've forgotten to pay the bill and they're not turned on. <laughs> did you did you guys see? OK, this is really off target and off topic. The Jules Conde, like how Barcelona registered him. Did anybody read about that or was no. that just me? Some, some uh, directors gave money or something to Yeah, to so, so the club's directors had to put up their own funds as collateral, basically to register Jules Conde, which honestly shouldn't surprise me, but that was another La Liga rule. I think it's like Article 93 or something like that in the La Liga rules that I had never heard of before. Barcelona will do whatever it takes to get Jules Conde <laughs> on the field. Will they do whatever it takes to get the light bulbs on? That's a different question. So what, so what you're saying, Joe, is Barcelona, as a fan-owned club, their owners have still put more money into that club than the Glazers have put into <laughs> Manchester United in the last 17 years? Is that what you're saying? I, I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what I'm saying, Graham. This was supposed to be a fun, lighthearted quiz, and instead you just made me sad again. Thanks for that. (laughs) Thanks for that, Graham. Uh, Joe, I'm giving you three out of three plus a bonus point, so four out of three for guessing the Spotify illumination pads. Well done, Joe. You know the most of anybody. Thank you. I I also like how these episodes regularly turn into Taylor giving arbitrary points and Graham and I competing for points without any clear idea of how to get points or what they actually mean. Either way, Graham, suck it, because I got four out of three. Damn. Joe, two points for pointing that out. Graham, three points for not responding to Joe's hostile uh, sentiments. Uh, I'm not sure what points we're at now. I'll try to get a score as we go through this episode. I have six. Graham has three. There we go. Okay. That's where we're at. Joe, you know what? One point for knowing the score. Seven to three. (laughs) Uh, Quiz is out of the way. Let's get into the meat of today's episode. We're taking a look at a few Americans who did things this weekend. We're starting with someone who did a bunch of things yesterday. So not quite this weekend. Yunus Musa. Graham. He played the whole game in Valencia's Mm -hmm. 1-0 loss to Atletico Madrid, and he did so as a central midfielder. Sound the alarm. We have a player playing at a position they might actually play for the United States. Yeah, and this was the thing that Joe was talking about with Valencia and Gattuso, the suggestion that Yunus Musa might not be playing on the wing for Valencia this season, as has been the case previously, but is going to be used in central midfield. And actually, more than that, I think what we saw on Monday night against Atletico Madrid, Valencia, we should note, did actually lose that match. But I, I didn't think they played ba- badly. In fact, on the, on the balance of play, they might have deserved something from it. And, and I thought Musa was one of the, the best players in a, in a white shirt, in a Valencia shirt on the pitch. And he is very much key to this Valencia team that Gattuso has, uh, has moulded very quickly. Gattuso, he is taking Valencia in a very different direction. Last season under Jose Bordalas, Valencia were a, a very compact, conservative team. Obviously, with Bordalas had been at Hitafe, We'd seen what he'd done there. He tried to carry that over to Valencia. Valencia fans were never very happy with it because Valencia liked to play a, a, an attack-minded game. They like to be on the front foot. So Gattuso's been brought in. He has a very vol- volatile character, so so that's, there's an element of risk there with him being Valencia manager, Valencia being a very volatile club. But in terms of his style of play and how he wants to play the game, I think it's a good match there. And on Monday night, we saw a lot of that. It was a very stretched match for, for, for large periods of the 90 minutes. And that suited Yunus Musa, who scored an absolute thunderbolt oh. of a goal only for it to be disallowed for a foul that he didn't even commit. It was committed by someone else in, in the build-up. And I think there should be a law in the game that if you score a good goal on moral grounds, it cannot be disallowed using VAR. I, I think this is what it should be, Graham. If the goal is scored from outside the box, it has to count. You can't pull it back Agreed. no matter what the foul was. If it's inside the box, okay, that's fine. You can take it back if, if the actual foul calls for it. But outside the box, it's just too cruel. It's far too cruel. 
I'm inclined to say VAR. I'm trying to think of this on the flight. Virtual American resentment. There it is. That's what I'm calling <laughs> it uh, for this one. Because that felt that, that felt like even if there were a foul, it should have just been like, you know what? That, that's too good of a strike. We're still going to count that one. Uh, why not? Joe, while things are raining on my parade, because VAR took that one away, I said earlier he's playing in a similar position to where he'll be playing for the United States. Now is your opportunity to tell me that that isn't technically true or to agree and make me happy. The choice is yours. It's it's going to be slightly different, but I don't really have any issue with this distinction. For me, it's a, a massive win to get Musa inside. In this game against Atleti, he was playing sometimes as part of a double pivot, sometimes just shaded to the right of a midfield three with Carles Soler, who was headed to PSG, apparently. So there's a spot opening, I'm, I'm guessing, will be filled by Gavi coming in. Sorry, not Gavi, Nico. Nico Gonzalez coming in from Barcelona on loan. But, I mean, Musa's playing in midfield. He's playing as a central midfielder, which is just a massive win. I, I think... It is going to do wonders. I'm optimistic it's going to do wonders for Musa's next step. You look at his profile, he was always sort of miscast as a winger. I think for Valencia, he's not, he, he's fast, he's not rapid on that right side. He's not a very good 1v1 dribbler in wide areas if you're trying to have him burst by somebody for pace. That's never been, in my mind, his his greatest skill. And he's not really all that good at hitting a final ball, which mm-hmm. you need from a winger. So all of those things kind of made it confusing as to why he was playing there. The thing that made it made sense is that Valencia had a bunch of really good central midfielders for two spots in a 4-4-2. So that's why he was playing out wide. Now that Gattuso's in and using Musa centrally, his skill set fits that role so much better. That's why we've seen him look way better for the U.S. men's national team than, it, than he has for, for club ever before. The, the key distinction, Taylor, I heard you agree with this, and I know you agree with this, and I want to turn it to you to talk about this, is the, the thing I just mentioned about his final ball not being there – I think he's going to get so many more reps under Gattuso in this system, both because of how Gattuso plays and and how he wants the ball for however long he's in charge of Valencia, (laughs) and and, and because of where he is on the field, right? Because when you're playing centrally, you get more touches. It's more chances for Musa to get reps doing things that maybe he's not great at and getting better at those things so he can translate those skills to the national team and just become a much better player. I really like this trajectory, and I think working on that final ball could be a great help for Musa. Yeah. First of all, I appreciate, Joe, that in response to my question, you gave me the highest form of agreement that Joe Lowry can give. I don't have any issue with this distinction. <laughs> Thank you for that, Joe. I appreciate you're that. You're welcome. And I appreciate happy, happy the segue into talking about that final ball because uh, I think you're right. Uh, it wasn't hit necessarily his strength when he was playing on the wing. In this game, I thought he did a great job of getting the ball in space and turning and carrying it forward, as we have come to expect from him with the U.S. Saw a few different Musa maneuvers, which I'm guessing made you happy, Joe. Yeah, um, I did. But I continued to not see that final ball. There's one in the second half. I think I had it in like the 60th minute, but that might be wrong, where he basically could have laid it off. Sorry, 71st minute. He could have laid it off. He's sort of dribbling up the defense. I think it's like a 3v3 situation, but the defense is very narrow. He has an overlapping runner, and he just overhits the ball and also, I think, kills the angle at the same time. And it's those moments where you can just see him slowing down and trying to figure out what to do and not sort of playing on instinct, not playing by repetition, and on the one hand, I don't love that because I would love to see him facilitate more attacking play, play some of those balls through, create more goal-scoring chances. But also, if it's not a thing he's been doing that much, if it is a relatively new position for him at club level, he has a new manager, I will give him some slack uh, as he figures things out. We would assume, as you said, Joe, with more reps, he gets a little bit better. Graham, I would also assume that with Edson Cavani on that team, he probably has to get a little bit better or he will hear about it from Cavani. 
that's uh, one of the most exciting things right now about Musa being at Valencia. Yes, it's exciting that Gattuso seems to be a better fit for him. But as you say there, Edson Cavani is, is coming into that squad. He um, was announced as a Valencia player yesterday. He was at Mestalla for the game last night, even though he wasn't in the squad. And Cavani is excellent at waiting to make runs in behind. And Musa will have to will have someone to find when he's on those driving runs and he draws a defender to him and then he can theoretically prod the pass through for Cavani. And you're right, some refinement is required in terms of his final ball. There were some moments yesterday in the game. There was one in the 17th minute. One of the things I liked about his performance yesterday and just his performances in general for Valencia this season has been Gattuso giving him a lot more freedom to make runs in behind. And there was one in particular in the 17th minute. It was really the first time that Valencia had broken through Atleti in the whole game. And he gets to the byline and he plays the cross into the middle. And it it just felt like either he should have taken a touch to compose himself to get the cross into the middle or he should have put a bit more weight on the ball to the back post where there was a Valencia player waiting for it. In the end, it's easily cleared by Atletico Madrid. So those those are the moments that he needs to improve on. But I am very excited to see how he improves when he has Edison Cavani to yeah. to play into. I know Cavani is 35. He's into well into the twilight of his of his career. But I, I think he's still one of the best around in terms of his, of his movement. We saw that in his first season at Manchester United. Second season at Manchester United was a was a was a train wreck for Manchester United and it felt like he kind of checked out of that season pretty early on. He didn't he didn't play much. But if he's engaged into what Valencia are doing, if Gattuso can get him on side, I I want to see how Mus- uses that signing to raise his own game. Either way, I think it's just very exciting to have an American starting for a big club or relatively big club in Spain because this is coming at a time we've talked plenty about Pulisic. We've talked about McKinney on the weekend review. Gio Reyna still not getting minutes. Tim Weah is still coming back from injury. So to have an American starting in central midfield, and as you said, Graham, I think looking like one of the more electric performers in that game at least, fills my heart with happiness. So well done to Yunus Musa. Joe, anything else uh, on Mr. Musa before we keep it going? Not anything on Musa, just a quick note about Americans, <clears throat> excuse me, about mm. Americans in Spain. John Brooks reportedly headed yes, to Mallorca. Just wanted to mention that very quickly. It seems like Brooks will have a spot to play before the World Cup. Whether that will change his standing with the national team is unknown, but there will be at least one other American outside of Musa, outside of Luca de la Torre, outside of the other folks that are there playing in Spain this year. He, he's going to take uh, Matthew Hoppe's locker at Real Mallorca. <laughs> he's going to open it and he's going to find. Uh, hair dye. He's going to find bleach. And he's going to go, I'm, I'm, I don't need that. <laughs> did Did Matthew Hoppe even get a locker at Mallorca? No. These are the questions we should start asking No, he had, he had to change in his car. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> he got a cubby in the hallway, I think. Uh, Mallorca, I was not as familiar with many of their players. I do know Javier Aguirre, their, uh, their manager. Nice to see him. Uh, I guess he's been there for a little bit of time, but former Mexico, Egypt, and Japan manager, also in Liga MX. Uh, so there's some CONCACAF connection there at Mallorca. We'll see what that means for John Brooks. Still feels like maybe uh, the World Cup will be a bridge too far for him at this point, but you never know. Maybe everybody gets injured. He has a lights-out season in Mallorca when the title, uh, and along the way, John Brooks starts for the U.S., I'm not sure stranger things have happened, but if they did, uh, then there you go. Uh, We have two more Americans we're going to discuss in some level of detail. We've also got a bunch of listener questions that are USMNT-centric. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. We will be back with much more in just a second. 
This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We continue to talk about Americans who did things this weekend. And Joe, a fellow Joe, did some things in Germany. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Joe Scally, Joe's Unite, first of all. Yep, Joe Scally course, is the greatest always, player to ever play soccer, uh, obviously. Started and played a full game against Bayern Munich. Started all four of Gladbach's games so far this year in the Bundesliga. He's a regular player for them, which is a really good thing to see. Taylor, I know you talked about this with Yunus Musa in the last segment, but it's it's good to see Americans doing stuff. And I, I've been on the train that says, ah, it's okay if some Americans aren't doing stuff. But it's also fun to see players like Musa develop and get time because they need to continue to get better. Uh, and, and players like Joe Scali certainly fall into that category as well, along with Musa. I thought Scally, and I talked about this yesterday on the Weekend Review, was good in this game. I don't think he was sensational, but being sensational against Bayern Munich is probably a little above our general expectations for Joe Scally right now. He was generally good in this game. He did pretty well defensively. For Scally, I think that's a good day because he doesn't have top-end speed, right? So if he can stand in against Bayern, and he's helped by how Gladbach approached this game, very defensive in a lower 4-4-2 block with one of the wide midfielders dropping down to form a back five, or even both of them dropping down to form a back six at times to deal with all of Bayern's pressure. I mean, Scali didn't really get burned all that much. You could see the speed difference, and he, he did get burned by Sadio Mane, I believe, in the 53rd minute. He just gets toasted on that side. And there's another sequence. I don't know if you guys saw this. It's in the 64th minute, and Bayern Munich are breaking, and Sané, Leroy Sané is charging in behind. And, and Gladbach have a couple other players back, but Scali's trying to track back. And it looks like, I don't know if anyone out there has seen Looney Tunes. It looks like Roadrunner <laughs> versus like Wiley e. Coyote. It looks like it's just a ridiculous Looney Tunes. Joe, okay, I didn't want to assume. <laughs> I didn't want to assume. It's some of the greatest cartoons of all time. So I hoped, but I didn't want to assume. It is. It's just a, like a comical speed difference. Like it almost feels cartoonish in, in the difference in speed. And that's just something that Scally has to deal with. He's not the, the quickest guy in the room. But all things considered, Taylor, I thought he did well against Bayern Munich and continues to prove. Uh, that, that he should get be getting minutes for Gladbach, and I, I certainly would like to see him involved at the U.S. in September. It, it, it's good that he's playing games, and I think the context of this match is that, as you say there, Joe, it was against Bayern Munich, away at Bayern Munich as well, who are, who have been in incredible form recently. And I have some mixed thoughts on, on the Gladbach performance as a whole in this game because... They had to bunker for times and uh, they obviously take their goal well in, in a counterattack that comes from an Upamecano mistake. But they did allow 20 shots on target. They rely on their goalkeeper, Jan Sommer, as we referenced in, on, on uh, the weekend review, to make a record number of saves, 19 to snatch a point. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you can argue that 
Gladbach did a, a great job of keeping Bayern Munich quiet, but I thought Scali's individual performance was was decent enough. It certainly wasn't perfect. Joe, I don't know, what did you think of the disallowed goal, the, the, the Sadio Mane disallowed goal in terms of Joe Scali's reaction to that? Because yeah. it felt like he, he lost track of his man at the back post. And again, this is where it's so difficult, difficult against Bayern Munich because he actually looks for Mane once, but by the time the ball is getting played into the box he hasn't looked a second time and he's lost Manny a little bit. And he gets away with that one because of a, a marginal offside interference by Leroy Sané before the ball got through to to uh, Manny. So I do wonder if maybe that was a flaw in his performance in this yeah. game. He did get blown by uh, by get get blown past by uh, Manny a couple of times, as you referenced. But I did wonder if maybe that was his biggest flaw in this performance. It, it, it could be. And Graham, that defensive awareness in the box is something that I continue to watch for with Joe Scali because it's such an underrated aspect of defending those those individual moments but it's also just so difficult like it's so difficult to defend in those sequences when either you're isolated or you're at the back post and there's someone cutting across you or cutting behind you it's so challenging to do that and keep your eye on both the, the player and the ball and the space it, it's really hard to do that stuff it's certainly something that I think Scally can improve I don't know that I'm ready to indict him for that particular sequence and say you know that, that that's the worst part of his game but it is something that I've noticed before from Scali. It's something I've noticed from George Bellow. It's something that a lot of young fullbacks, certainly in the American player pool, and I think around the world, can struggle with. That's something that he should continue to improve overall going forward. One thing that I did like from Scali in this game, and we've seen it in the past from him as well, Taylor, you and I have talked about this a bunch, is his left foot. It mm-hmm. was difficult because Gladbach didn't, he's right-footed, I should make that very clear. So his weak foot, his left foot, I think is very good. Gladbach didn't get much of the ball in this game because they were playing Bayern Munich, one of the best teams in the world. And so they defended a lot, but there's a couple different moments where Scali gets on the ball and he actually does something with it, right? So there's a really clever pass. So he's playing right back. There's a really clever pass in the 24th minute where he receives the ball on the right, so wide on the right, under pressure from Alfonso Davies. He moves backwards and inside a little bit, Scali, to try and draw Davies forward and let the play develop in front of him. He gets the ball on his left foot, his weak foot, and threads it forward. To a, to a teammate, right? He threads it forward to a center back who drifted into midfield. It's a great ball, and Gladbach can't progress from there, and that's not really on Scali. I think it was a smart ball to play. But it's another example. We saw this a bunch last season with Scali playing as a right wing back of him getting the ball on the right side, cutting in on his left, and hitting some sort of incisive forward pass into midfield. And he's doing that stuff again this year. I think that's part of what makes him a, a real asset as a fullback is how press-resistant he can be. He turtled a few times in this game, and he wasn't perfect. But I, I like that Scally brings that weak foot skill to the table. What does it mean when a defender turtles, Joe? Well, I mean, in this case, like as a as an attacker, right? With Scally, okay. de- still a defensive player, but getting the ball and, and being under pressure and kind of just not really knowing what to do and, and leaning towards protecting the ball rather than progressing. Part of that, though, is also on Gladbach because they didn't always do the best job of moving off the ball to open up space. But that's kind of just what happens when you play against Bayern. I was genuinely concerned that I had missed a moment in which he like ducked out of a header and like put his head <laughs> yeah. down and was like, okay, so that's what he meant by turtling. So I'm glad to hear it wasn't quite so obvious. And it does seem like Scali, even against Bayern, still had, I think, as good of an outing as you can have for a defender in the Bundesliga playing Bayern Munich. Uh, we talked a little bit about his passing numbers on the weekend review, but we would assume that, again, with more reps, with more time, he will continue mm. to get that confidence. He is also a player, Doug McIntyre was reporting that Greg Berhalter is going over to Europe to watch a few different players to see a few different games. 
he'll be at the Old Firm Derby because we've got plenty of Americans playing in that one. But Joe Scally yeah. was another one that was specifically mentioned as being someone that uh, will be uh, watched by either Berhalter or his staff. Joe, if Dest isn't playing for Barcelona, we've talked plenty about how it's going to be Dest, Cannon, Yedlin in some order. Or that's the death chart as we've seen it so far. But it does seem like Scally is the one that is the primary beneficiary if it is Dest sitting sitting out or in street clothes for most of Barca's games. Yeah, I mean, it, it provides a chance for Scally to show his stuff while Dest is very much not doing that. And I, I, we had a question on Twitter, and we won't be able to get to all of them, a ton of questions on Twitter that, that responded to the tweet we sent out. But one of the questions was about, you know, if Dest shows up in September in street clothes and hasn't played for, for Barcelona, you know, you still, you still bring him in. It was something to that effect. And I, I think no matter what Dest does... He's still the first right back on the depth chart when you want a guy to go forward and cause problems in the attack. He's still that guy. But Scali is is playing and performing at a higher level than Reggie Cannon. He's playing and performing at a higher level than DeAndre Edlin, and he's showing some good stuff. What Berhalter decides to do, I don't know. It's kind of unfortunate for Scali's sake that DeAndre Yedlin is like the veteran in this pool at this point, and he happens to play a position where there's a number of other capable players. And in my mind, I don't think Yedlin is really bringing you that much outside of his experience and his his know-how, which is sort of this, these intangible attributes. I don't think he's bringing you much on the field that you can't get from other players, but he's he's a vet, so, so do you bring him along? I, I think you still probably do. Reggie Cannon's the guy who can play as a third center back. Scally's much more of a, a fullback or a wingback than he is a center back hybrid player. So it's a difficult call right now. Maybe he's coming as a left back, but I don't yep. love him as much on that side. It's complicated. These are complicated decisions that I genuinely don't envy Greg Berhalter and how he builds this squad. Joe, Joe, what does Berhalter need to see from Scali, assuming that he gets into that roster for the, the September friendlies? What, what does he need to see from him to reorder the the pecking order for that right back to basically jump ahead of Yedlin does he need to prove that he can be the deputy for Dest in case he gets injured or whether he maybe Dest just starts that first game of the World Cup completely out of form because he's not played for Barcelona for so long and Berhalter feels he needs someone else to come in and do that job does he need to prove that he is a deputy or does he need to prove that he can bring something a little bit different I think he needs to to do both of those things, to be honest. I think he needs to continue to show how good his weak foot is and how useful he can be in some of those build-up situations. But I think he also needs to show that, yeah, I can I can do the same thing that Jandre Yedlin can do. Now, he doesn't have the speed, so that makes it difficult. But Yedlin is basically Des backup in that sense. If you think about Cannon as a, a more reserved defensive option and Yedlin and Des as the players who are going to get high and wide on that right side... Scali needs to show that he can do one of those things, right? Either either to be Des deputy or to be you know a better version of Reggie Cannon. And I I have no idea if Joe Scali can do the third center back thing because we've never seen him do that before. At least I haven't for Gladback or for NYCFC. It's it's tough. I mean honestly, and I, I don't wish this on anyone. Scali needs the right back depth chart or the fullback depth chart in general to thin. He he needs no left back to step up to the plate behind Jedi Robinson. He need, there needs to be in that spot, or he needs Cannon or Yedlin to have some sort of issue, or Dest to have some sort of issue that prevents them from going to the World Cup. And I don't know what's going to happen. Again, I don't wish that on anything. But there's a lot of names for probably not quite as many spots, unless you're forgetting about the backup left back, the left-footed one, and thinking Scally really can do that job. Graham, I'm really going to pen you in with this one. Uh, if you have to pick uh, who should start at right back for the U.S. at the World Cup right now, and then you, basically whoever you pick, regardless of what happens for the next couple months, they are your starter oh, day don't. one. Oh. Injury pendant, like injury This is so aside, easy. This is so easy. Who would you go with? Is it Scally or Dest? 
Is, is this a trick question? Because no. I feel like there's an obvious answer to this. <laughs> and it's, it's the guy in street clothes at the, at the camp now. I still feel like he, he is my starter. I think, I think that just means Graham is Team Carbonite along with me. <laughs> Graham, congrats. Thanks for coming over. We got great snacks. The break room's really cushy. We got a Thanks. whole Carbonite thing in the back. Welcome aboard. <laughs> I didn't realize. Thank you. I'm pleased, pleased to be aboard. Good. <laughs> I Thanks. didn't realize that that's what I had led us to. That's good stuff, guys. That's good stuff. You know what? Three points for you both. It's still 10 to 6, but Graham's closing the gap, <laughs> sort of. Uh, now, let's take a look at some Americans in lower divisions. This lower league special is sponsored by FX's Welcome to Wrexham, which airs Wednesday on FX and you can stream it on Hulu. This new original documentary series focuses on two famous Americans abroad, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, as they take over the struggling Welsh football club Wrexham AFC of the fifth tier of the English Football League system. This week we'll focus on some Americans abroad who also compete in lower leagues with similar dreams of promotion. We're going to go back to a familiar well because, Joe, let's talk about Josh Sargent for a second. Once again scoring goals, once again, or goal specifically, once again leading the line for Norwich, and once again looking pretty live. Lively for them as they defeated Sunderland 1-0. Yeah, I mean, he's got four goals in the championship season so far. Four goals in 360 minutes. And it, it strikes me, and it's it's too early, we need to see more, but it strikes me that Sargent is doing the repeatable stuff that he hasn't really done before in terms of the goal scoring. And it, it's weird because his goal against Sunderland, that's who it was, right? Sunderland over the, yeah. over the weekend. It came when Timu Puki had come off the bench around the 60th minute, and Sargent had shifted from striker back to right wing. He was doing a bunch of defending. He was still getting forward, but the goal comes when he's playing as a right winger. But it still feels like a a striker-esque, a goal scorer's move that leads to the goal. It's Sargent crashing the box on the weak side and, and tapping the ball home. He sees space, he attacks it, and he puts the ball in the back of the net. That's the kind of thing that really good strikers do. That's the kind of thing that Josh Sargent has done this year. And it's the kind of thing that he hadn't done really dating back to his time with like the USU 20s back in the summer of, of 2017. And he's, he's brilliant. I mean, he, he's been playing really, really well. I still have questions, the same exact questions that we raised when we talked about Sargent before, about what happens in a, in a more permanent sense when Timu Puki is back and starting. And, and given that he played 30 minutes over the weekend, it feels like we're getting closer and closer to that reality. Now, it's great that the championship plays 80,000 games in a single season, <laughs> but there's only so many minutes in Dean Smith's 4-3-3 for a number nine, right? I mean, he's only playing with one striker. So I don't know how this works. Is he going to take Sargent out and put him on the wing or put him on the bench? I don't know. But Josh Sargent is making that decision more and more difficult to make every single week, yeah. and that's a really good thing for him. Even before he got shifted out to the right wing when Pookie comes on in that game, there, there were good moments from him. And there's there's one in particular, a cross comes in from the, the right back. I think it might have been Max Ahrens, who of course plays for, for Norwich at right back. And uh, and Sargent makes the, the, the darting run to the near post. Now his, his finish isn't, isn't perfect. It's a little bit clumsy. I'm not entirely sure whether it comes off him or the or the defender. He, he kind of makes a little bit of a mess of it. But that's, I think, what you're talking about, Joe, with just the number of reps. Those sort of opportunities he was not getting last season. So just getting him into those positions will improve his game. And then I think we see that improvement in the second half, even when he has moved out to the right wing. As you say, Joe, the, the goal he scores is very much a striker's goal and he puts that one away. And that's really all you can ask of him. Uh, But you can also, I guess, ask him to continue to sort of develop, to be able to play the way uh, he needs to play while also kind of handling handling the physicality of 
the championship. Uh, this is maybe like too uh, neurotic of a question, but do either of you have concerns about him sort of finding his level in the championship? I, I hope that makes sense. But uh, watching him this weekend, watching that like the, the his moments this weekend, it felt like he was sort of given more time than he's going to get in the Premier League if Norwich were to be promoted back into the, into the Premiership. And it just seems like I can see a world in which he gets used to that speed of play, gets used to having a little bit more time, struggles when they get promoted. But I guess that is a, a an if-not-when sort of situation. So for now, maybe it's better to just be happy that he's scoring goals and playing minutes. The, the American the American Billy Sharp is basically what you're saying, a, a player who is comfortable in the championship, or Mitrovic, I know he's doing it this season, but until this season he hasn't yeah. really done it in the Premier League, but has been a goal machine in the championship, maybe that's what Sargent's future holds. I would have Just to focus on the now, Mitrovic. focus on the now, is what I'm saying there. <laughs> Josh Sargent as the new Alexander Mitrovic is fine uh, with me, which means he'd be good in the air, Zach Steffen not so good in the air, at least this weekend, because he didn't play, he missed the game versus Swansea with injury, uh, so too did Matthew Hoppy not playing playing for Middlesbrough either. Uh, not in the match day squad, is playing for the U21s and got a brace for them. So we continue to see that sort of the development that was uh, needed, stressed by Chris Wilder, his manager, that he's got the physicality down, just needs to get the physical fitness and the technical ability up, and then we'll be good to go. Or was it not physical fitness, Graham? Was it just uh, has the fitness but needs maybe a bit more technical precision? <laughs> he's good at running, needs to be better at soccer, I think, was the uh, the conclusion drawn by Chris Wilder there. Now, obviously, I'm being facetious there, but a little bit, yeah. it, it feels like... <laughs> also uh, I remember, I remember, I remember <laughs> Oliver Burke... When he moved to RB Leipzig, Ranić saying I might have mentioned this in the podcast before, but basically saying he didn't have a he didn't have a hard drive, a technical or, or technical oh. ability, but he was good at running. So maybe Matthew Hoppy's got that going for him. I'm not sure I have even that going for me. So Matthew Hoppy still has the advantage on me, uh, in case he didn't know. Uh, Ethan Horvath was not injured, did start in Luton's one to one draw with Sheffield United from uh, I think it was Brian Sharetta's write up. Uh, he was not at fault for the goal, nothing to be done about that one. So Ethan Horvath continues to play regularly and get those minutes and do a good enough job to remain in that conversation, we would assume. Gianluca Busio uh, out with injury for Venezia, but Tanner Tespin started, played 62 minutes. Jack DeVries played the second half for, for Venezia. And I believe Andrea uh, Novakovic also played, Novakovic, Novakovic, there it is, uh, also played a few minutes there at the end. Did not realize that we have four different Americans playing for Venice. Uh, so well done to them in Serie B. Uh, less well done, but still, you know, get some minutes for George Bello. Three minutes for Armenia Bielefeld in their 4-1 to win over Eintracht. Uh, Brian, Brian Zweig? Brian Zweig? Either way, uh, they they got the win, but Bello Manuel did not Vaith get Manuel Vaith is so minutes. disappointed in you right now, Taylor. Well. I can't even express that. I mean, you know, I, I, he's calling me Tyler. I'm allowed to call them uh Bronk, Bronkweig, <laughs> Bronkweig, whatever it is. Uh, either way, George Bello, a player that Joe, we had maybe talked about being in the left back conversation. It does seem like he is one who maybe is very much on the outside looking in. I would say even yeah. Sam Vines, who is now starting playing regularly in Belgium, uh, maybe leapfrogging him there. Yeah, Bello is, is lowering himself down the depth chart, it seems like. And maybe that lowering already happened a couple of months ago. I would be very surprised. Not, not. I'm not ruling out entirely, but I'd be very surprised if George Bellows at the World Cup for the U.S. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. In fact, I think to some extent, as we talked about earlier, the lack of obvious 
challengers for Anthony Robinson's left back spot is where I think we may end up seeing Joe Scally because we could, could then be. have Dest uh, jump to left back if need be. We could have Scally there. I think maybe that lack of an obvious uh, left back deputy does open some doors. If it does, we will certainly talk about that. If it's George Bellow, then we will talk about him the next time we have a Americans Abroad in the Lower Divisions segment sponsored by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Again, that airs Wednesday on FX. You can stream it on Hulu. Thank you to FX's Welcome to Wrexham for sponsoring today's episode and this segment. One more question for you both before we, we take another break. Uh, I'm still sort of reeling from how much, how easy of a question you thought the Dest versus Scally question was. Because in my mind, if Scally continues to start for Gladbach every single week and Dest sits in street clothes on the sidelines, come the World Cup, one of them does seem sharper to me. So you all feel like Sergio Dest is that far ahead of Joe Scally that yeah. even with those reps, it doesn't make a difference. I just think Dest is a much this is this is maybe a simplistic answer, but fundamentally I think Dest is just a much better player than Joe Scally. So when we talk about Christian Pulisic, who maybe isn't going to be playing all that much at Chelsea, seems like he is he's going to be staying at, at Chelsea now. The the transfer window is going to close and he's still going to be there. But there's there's other good players, you know, Brendan Aronson obviously doing a good job with with Leagues, Timothy with Leeds, Timothy Weah, uh, Gio Reyna still to come back into that roster if 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 he's fit. So there's a lot of good options for his position I, with with Dest it's just he has a, a much bigger lead over the the second option if that's Scally in my opinion Taylor I could juggle my soccer ball for an hour a day and play two men's league games a week and I would still not be as good as Sergio Dest sitting on the bench if he sits on that bench for the next 40 years that's that's my answer to your question so he's not even I- on the bench yeah, true. In the stands. Stand. Just to be clear, you're equating you juggling a ball and playing two men's league games to Joe Scally starting for Borussia Mönchengladbach in the Bundesliga? Yeah, roughly equating, yes. <laughs> you know what, Joe? Minus one for you, uh, plus two for Graham for, for you, a great answer. And We're you tired. said that Manuel Vaith would be disappointed in Taylor, Joe. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you're right. I, there is an Eintracht like Breinschweig, right? But then there's also Breinschweig. Either way, I don't. It doesn't matter. You guys uh, made some good points there. It's still nine to eight, Joe Lowry, despite losing a point. We will be back in just a moment. We've talked about our Americans abroad. Now we're going to answer some questions about the USMNT or USMNT players. Back soon to do just that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. Gentlemen, I hope neither of you ever left. Uh, If you did, you hit it very, very well. We've got four listener questions. Uh, Graham, I'm coming to you for this one first from Alex Campbell. Which American player player, excuse me, will move for the biggest transfer fee within the two windows following the World Cup? Uh, Alex says his answer uh, is Yunus Musa. Graham, for you, uh, before you give us your answer, how did you sort of go about thinking about this one? Because I did think, 
I had an obvious answer, and then I thought about it a little bit more in depth and changed my like way of approaching this one to figure out who it might actually be. I'm being very vague here, but I'm setting the stage for Graham to explain his methodology before he gives us his answer. So I tried to read the, the tea leaves a little mm-hmm, bit and look at each each uh, club situation for each player and try and work out who is likely to be moving after a a World Cup. My answer is a very boring answer, I'm afraid. For me, it's Christian Pulisic because I I think it's going to take a a big turnaround for him to stay at Chelsea. Right now, it feels like he is... uh, I mean, actually, the reports that I've read says that he wants to leave Chelsea at the moment, but I'd imagine somewhere in his mind he doesn't want to upset things too much before... The World Cup, obviously, that's just on the horizon. But after that World Cup is is out of the way, if Thomas Tuchel is still at Chelsea, which there's maybe a question mark there, but if he is, I think Pulisic is going to have to have to leave Chelsea. And when he does leave Chelsea, they're going to get a decent fee for him, I'd guess. I've obviously got no inside information, but I think they'll get at least £30 million for him. And, and I just don't see... There might be a number of very good US players on the move in those two windows after after the World Cup. I don't think Yunus Musa is a ridiculous suggestion, but um, I I just don't see another US player surpassing the fee that Pulisic would get on on the on the open mar- open market. And I think he will be on the open market after the after the World Cup. So, Graham, you're saying Pulisic? You're saying for around thirty million pounds? Was that the number? Yeah, I mean, I've completely plucked that out of thin mm-hmm. air, but that seems about right. Chelsea paid, I think, fifty-five million pounds for him. He was younger at that time. He'd maybe uh, he maybe had made more of a profound impact for Dortmund at that time. He was more in vogue at that time. So I, I would say about thirty to forty million pounds they would get from. All right, Joe, how say you? So I also say Christian Pulisic, but I want to split this in two different ways. So one way is in terms of value. And one way is in terms of likely likeliness to move. That mm-hmm. was a terrible way to phrase that. But I think that is the, the likelihood of moviosity. Is what yes, that's mm-hmm. the one. Gotcha. L-O-M, yep. as we generally refer to it. <laughs> so in terms of value, I, I do think Christian Pulisic is going to be really far up that list. Um, maybe even top. The other contender for that, I think, is Gio Reyna. Just with his profile and, and how how good he is at soccer if he can stay healthy he checks all the boxes attacker they go for a bunch of money he's young he's 19 right now he'll be you know maybe 20 by the time he moves plays for a big club big club with a track record of of moving players on that's that's the reality and he's I think the most talented player in the U.S. pool he could go for 80 million dollars next summer and I wouldn't be surprised like he's, he's that good it would just take a good world cup and a strong Bundesliga season for that to happen I just don't know, given his injuries, how likely that is to happen. So if we're talking about the, the move that could happen, it seems like it will, Pulisic, and he's, he's going to go for a lot. I, I'd wager he goes for more than $30 million. But, I mean, regardless, Chelsea paid, what, $73 million for him back in 2019 in January of that year? I, I think he could go for, for $50 million, and, and that's a big chunk of change. The only other one is something that Alex, Alex mentioned in his question, is Yunus Musa. I think that's a really good answer here. I just don't think he'll fetch as much as Reyna would if he moved, and so that's in the theoretical category, or as Pulisic probably will when he moves just because Pulisic is a winger and Yunus Musa is a central midfielder. And you're just not generally going to be getting as much money for those players. But I, I love Musa. I think he's going to be a star. I, I love his trajectory right now. I think this season could be massive for him. We talked about him a bunch early on. But those three players are the ones that really came to mind for me. Maybe McKenney's in that group as well. Maybe Weah gets a move, but... Pulisic is probably the most realistic answer here. Could could you also make a case for Tyler Adams, given that maybe this is recency bias, bias and he's obviously started very well at Leeds, but he's got a World Cup 
ahead of him and you look at the player that he replaced for Leeds, Calvin Phillips. Now, Calvin Phillips is a good player, but you wouldn't say Calvin Phillips was in contention for Player of the Year awards in the Premier League and he actually missed about half of last season and I think he still went to Manchester City. And maybe maybe there's the, the English tax to factor in here, but he still went to Manchester City for £45 million. So... I think Adams, as a player, if he keeps this up over the course of the season, has a good World Cup, he's going to be in demand this time next year. And if I had to predict a little bit further, I'd say maybe uh, maybe Chelsea could be a team that looks at him. They're going to have to revamp that midfield and go Canties into his, for the final year of his, of his contract. So um, if um, a lot of things need to happen for that interest to be stoked. But if, if I'm looking into the crystal ball, there's there's one prediction for you, Tyler, Tyler Adams, to uh, to Chelsea. It does sort of require whoever it is to be sold to a Premier League club or a Super League club because outside of those, you are looking at, I think, probably a smaller amount. I had a different Leeds player as my answer. Yes, I'm Ah. fully aboard the Brendan Aronson hype train uh, (laughs) because this is a player. The way I was thinking about it is like Tim Weah could have a really strong season, but I don't know if he has done enough to like, even if he's like the league on leading goal scorer, I don't know even then if that's enough to jump him to that level where he is commanding a huge transfer fee. I think it requires a player to have a little bit more on their CV or at least to have proven it theoretically in the Premier League. And I think with things going as they are for Brendan Aronson, uh, maybe that's a thing. But And then the recency of his move, his contract uh, having multiple years left on it would mean that he has to go for a larger amount. And maybe uh, let's do it this way. Let's just have a Christian Pulisic move to Leeds and then Brendan Aronson can replace him. Maybe Chelsea pay a fee. And then we've got a, a double Americans making money sort of transfer. The good old swap. That that does feel, I mean, let's trade it and make it a full Toddy Bowley move. I think that's the way to go about <laughs> yes, this. I like it. I like it. Uh, let's go to this one, uh, Joe from Bradley Moore. Would Josh Cohen get a look in uh, at goalkeeper in September for the USMNT as he is playing very solid for Maccabi Haifa and is in the group stage of the Champions League? Joe, I will come to you in a second. First, for people who are unaware, uh, I don't know how you could be. Uh, just kidding. I had no idea who this was until about <laughs> an hour before recording. 30-year-old Israeli-American who plays for Maccabi Haifa in the Israeli Premier League. Uh, he was previously with Orange County SC, Phoenix Rising, and Sacramento Republic. Transferred to Maccabi Haifa ahead of the 2019 season. Was named the league's player of the season for the 2020-2021 campaign. Excuse me. This season, they have made the group stage, as Bradley said. Um and they've done so, they've had a journey. They eliminated Olympiacos 5-1 to on aggregate, then Apollon uh, Limassol, excuse me, 4-2, and finally Red Star Belgrade 5-4 to on aggregate. So goals conceded, but still they've made the Champions League group stage. Joe, you picked this question. I'm wondering if you have familiarity with Josh yeah. Cohen dating back to Phoenix Rising. I uh, do. I turn it to you. Yeah, it's, it's a great story, right? This is a really great story. I think it's one of the best American soccer success stories that's out there right now. So Josh Cohen, to, to peel back my curtain here, is the first soccer player that I ever sat down and interviewed. So this was years and years ago back with Phoenix Rising. But, I mean, his, his success is incredible to see. To answer the question first, and I'll, I'll dive in a little deeper into the story, I do not think we will see Josh Cohen get a look for the U.S. men's national team before the World Cup. And I might even be surprised if we see him get a look for the national team after the World Cup. A lot could change. Like, a few really good Champions League group stage performances maybe start to swing that a little bit, but I'll talk more about why I don't think he'll be involved later. First, the story. So, born in California, college soccer, University of California, San Diego, graduated in 2013, played PDL for a while, so not playing professional soccer, 
lands a pro contract in 2015 with the, I believe they were called the Orange County Blues at that time, now called Orange County Soccer Club. Then played for Phoenix Rising, played for Sacramento Republic, and was generally generally regarded, especially with Sacramento, as one of the best goalkeepers in the USL. So really good second division player, then goes from Sacramento to Maccabi Haifa in, in Israel. So that's in July of 2019. He makes his first start in September of 2019, then goes and wins the Israeli Premier League Player of the Year in 2020 and 2021, which you just don't see happen very often with goalkeepers. And, and the fact that Cohen's going from the USL to Israel, not like playing in Israel is the highest level or anything like that. But I mean, it's a, it's a really impressive accomplishment for him to go and do that. Has had MLS interest in the past. Tom Boger's reported a bunch of that stuff. It seemed like he was close to signing with Atlanta United. That didn't happen. Is still in Israel and now is still in the Champions League. Again, a, a really cool story. Um, Soccer America had a good piece out on this that I believe Brian Sharetta wrote. So go go read that. It's it's awesome, right? This is a neat thing. I, I don't think we're going to see him for the U.S. in the World Cup, though. He's 30, and he's not likely to start over someone like Matt Turner or or even like any of the other names that Greg Berhalter knows. I don't think he's, he's that level of a goalkeeper that he's an automatic starter. I don't think he'd be playing in Israel if that was the case. And that's a, a bit of a generalization, but you get what I mean. And and the biggest thing here is he hasn't been in the U.S. pool before or ever right. been capped mm-hmm. with the U.S. men's national team. So I think the key distinction here is he's not if he's not going to be starting, oftentimes you're looking for either the next generation of a goalkeeper, so a young player, think Gaga Slanina, or someone who's been around before and can be just a, a veteran voice in that spot. And Cohen has the age to be considered a veteran as a soccer player, but he doesn't have the experience and so if he's not going to start, which I don't think he will, I, I don't think it makes a lot of sense for him to be on that squad as the third goalkeeper because he's not really bringing any experience or, or that veteran pedigree to the U.S. men's national team. Has anyone seen Maccabi Haifa's Champions League group that they've been drawn in <laughs> with yeah. Benfica, Juventus, and PSG? Good luck, Josh, Co- Josh Cohen. You, yeah. might have to, uh, you might have to look out your good gloves to save a lot of shots. But if he does, maybe he gets his way into that conversation. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, Joe, I think I think you are you are correct in everything you said, both in terms of it being a great story, but also maybe it being a, a jump too far there. Because for him to make that leap to be in consideration, I think he would have to be that next level lights out performer. And even just in the, in the little bit I watched of him, some of his highlights or just his his sort of uh, assembled clips, I saw him throw the ball out of bounds twice, trying to get it to a teammate. Granted, it was in transition he was trying to launch a counterattack quickly and maybe the teammate could have done better bringing the ball under control but I think those little moments unfair as it may be if you're a scout if you're watching him if he's not that like yep he's the complete package let's bring him in and see what happens you don't really want to have to coach somebody up or try to figure out a new entity when you're already sort of trying to figure out which of the three you already know is, is most likely to be your best option in goal so I think probably a bit too far for Josh Cohen, but still a very cool story and one that I'm glad that Bradley asked about. Yeah. Uh, let's keep it moving. Graham, coming to you for this one from Alex Hogankamp. If you were the USMNT manager, uh, how many times would you start Serginho Dest and where? <laughs> uh, but if you don't want to answer that one, Alex's actual question, uh, what three lineups would you deploy in each of the three group stage matches if the World Cup started tomorrow? Okay, so I'm going to run through my three lineups and then highlight which which bits of it are are, are changing mm-hmm. between the matches. So I'll, I'll run through my lineup first of all. So Wales match: Turner, Robinson, Richard, Zimmerman, Dest, McKenney, Adams, Musa, Pulisic, Pifok, uh, Aronson. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my lineup for the Wales game. I'm not going to repeat 
anything else beyond the uh, the the front three because it's the same for so the same the same back line the same midfield three it's the front three that I'm changing for for the games before my, we go logic, sorry really quickly you had uh, Zimmerman and Richards were your two center backs just so I have it right yes All right, cool yeah that's cool, right cool. yeah All right, cool yeah so my logic here is in this Wales game there will be two features one is that the dominance in terms of possession will be up for grabs. So the US will, will have to try and stop Wales from, from getting into their rhythm and the US will have to try and keep the ball themselves. And that's why I, I've gone for Aronson on, on the right of the front three. I basically want him pressing Wales to death like he uh, like he pressed Edward Mendy to uh, to death in that, in that Chelsea game. I also think with the way that Wales defend that this match could be about crosses and, and balls into the box for, for the US. So I want, I want a striker who can make the most of those crosses. We've seen Jordan Peefock a number of times make those those runs to the near post to get his head on the end of those. He's just generally, for me anyway, at this moment in time, he's probably the best traditional penalty box operator that the US has in the pool. So that's why I've gone with Peefock for, for this game. For the England game, as I say, same goalkeeper, same defence, same midfield. It's the front three that I've changed. So with the, with the England match, I think they're going to have more of the ball. So I want as many moments of quick transition as possible because I, I, I don't think the US should have to bunker in this game. You'll think I'm being ridiculous here. But if I look back to the, the last Euros... Scotland got after England in a little way and you can you can you can disrupt them but the key is that you need to get out so that's why I've gone for Ferreira and uh, Timothy Weah in this front line I want Weah to, to stretch the pitch down that right side I want Pulisic to make quick decisions and I want Ferreira to, to drop deep and, and create space for both of them to, to try and spin in behind as I say it's all about quick transition moments I think that's how you can how you can harm England Italy certainly did that in, in the, Euro, uh, the Euro 2020 final and as I say, Scotland, even though we didn't score, we did it to a certain extent. So that's the, the template I'm using. And then for the final match against Iran, I, I don't have much logic behind my team for the Iran game, mainly because it's the opposition side that I know the least about. But I think you want to try and maintain possession. And so I've gone for a front three of uh, Pulisic, Ferreira and Aronson. I've gone for Aronson over way on the right because of his... Of his uh, his, his ability to keep possession and also his ability to, to press from the front. So I want the US to dominate the, that game in terms of possession and territory. And so that is my front three for that game. There we go. So CP starting uh, all of the group stage games. It's Jordan Pifuck against Wales and it's Ferreira against England and Iran. And then it's Brendan Aronson versus Wales, Wea versus England, and then Brendan Aronson again versus Iran. That's, That's right. about it. Uh, I, I like all of that, and I think I agree with most of it, but I look forward to hearing uh, Joe's thoughts on this one. Starting, Joe, with, do you have it, similar to Graham, do you have roughly the same team uh, a number of different times and then a few different uh, changes, or do you have more consistent changes throughout? So I have a few positions that don't change. I have a little more rotation than Graham does. I think fixture congestion is a real thing. I don't think the U.S. is going to rotate like they did in World Cup qualifying at times. But, I, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I, I'd have to go back through and look. Forget that. I, I think the U.S. will change some things, but not everything. So I have a few positions that stay the same from game to game. Matt Turner's starting in goal every single game. Zimmerman and Richards are starting at center back every single game. Jedi Robinson is playing all three at left back. And Tyler Adams is in midfield in every game. 
Now, there's flexibility there because things will change, red cards, yellow cards, injuries, all that stuff. But assuming that stuff doesn't happen, which is a big old assumption, those players are starting all three matches. And maybe Jesus Ferreira, but I just don't know how to make sense of this nine pool right now. So that's a little bit up in the air. But against Wales, factoring in those rocks in each game. So Turner in goal, Zimmerman and Richards in the back, Dest at right back, Jedi at left back. So that's my back four in this 4-3-3 shape. I have the MMA midfield. So Tyler Adams at the six, Musa and McKenney as the two eights. I have Gio Reyna, if he's healthy, on the right, because I think he's the best player in the U.S. pool. And I have Christian Pulisic on the left and Jesus Ferreira as the number nine. So that's my 4-3-3, pretty standard shape. A lot of things we've seen before from the U.S. men's national team. Then you head into England, and I'm tweaking things a little bit, partly because I don't, I'm not in love with Dest defending against England. I'm not in love with Reggie Cannon defending against England either, but I am intrigued by some of the positional things you can do when Reggie Cannon is involved in the squad. So it's Turner and goal still, Zimmerman and Richards in the back, Jedi on the left, Reggie Cannon on the right, Tyler Adams, Musa, and Aronson in midfield with Musa and Adams doing that double pivot thing against Morocco where we see Aronson shifting up into the right half space. And then way up wide right, Pulisic on the left, and Ferreira as that number nine. So it really is that 3-2-5 in possession shape that we saw for the U.S. in June against Morocco, and, and we've seen it at times in the past as well. And then Aronson just pressing and being aggressive in that 4-3-3. Uh, Graham, you talked about that against Wales. I, I want that against Wales, sure, but I, I really want it against England too. And then lastly, I'm going back to the 4-3-3 against, uh, against Iran. It's just Turner, Zimmerman, and Richards, Dest on the right, Jedi on the left, Adams and McKenney and Luca De La Torre, because I think Musa might need a little bit of a break. And then Reyna on the right, Aronson on the left, because Pulisic might need a little bit of a break. And then either Sargent or Ferreira or Vasquez or Pifak or whoever it's going to be <laughs> at the number nine. Wow. All right, Joe, detailed thoughts. I like all of that. And I think basically it sounds like you both have – uh, a few core players, Graham, uh, a few more than Joe. And then it's just a couple different uh, differences, mostly in that front line. But Joe, I also like the midfield rotation. Why do you do? You, what is giving you the inclination that Brendan Aronson could play more centrally under Burhalter? I know he's capable of that, but do you feel like that's the thing Burhalter might actually try? Yeah, because we saw it in June, right? We saw Aronson do that against Morocco where he presses at the right side of number eight um, and then he shifts in to the right half space in possession and you get that front five. So the, the front five in terms of the spacing is the same, but Aronson's playing a hybrid role. So Berhalter's talked about that stuff before, so I, I totally think he could do it. I'd honestly be a little surprised if we don't see it uh, because I think Berhalter planned that out so that he could test it before the World Cup with the eye with an, with an eye to doing it in Qatar. I think we'll see Aronson do that and it's it's a great way to get another attacker on the field and Aronson, with how well he's playing at Leeds, I think has a, a real claim to be on the field. Man, I do not remember that USA-Morocco game at all. So, uh, Joe, way to remember things. Thank you <laughs> for that one. Uh, Graham, anything else to add on this question? Or should we get to our final one? So not to be pedantic oh about the question, oh but boy. if Gio Reyna is fit and ready, he makes my team. But, Joe, the question said if the World Cup started tomorrow. Oh, and I did played, not read that. I think 28 minutes uh, this season. or he didn't. I don't think he played at the weekend, actually. Yeah. So I agree. Potentially, he is yeah, the best player work. the U.S. has. Um, but right now, I wouldn't start him. Give his, uh, give his minutes to Aronson and Weah. That's that's the solution. Okay. Graham, you're totally right. <laughs> Taylor, can I self-demote myself one point? Uh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, Joe, and uh, just as long as you also feel the appropriate level of shame. I do. Yeah, okay. I do. Cool. So are we level now? Is that eight all? I believe I you th- are level. Let's Low see key, how I think Taylor gave. I think Taylor said I was minus two earlier and only took one off the score, but it's too late now. So I think we are tied eight to eight. Oh, I apologize. I apologize. No, no, no. It's all good. I also could be totally wrong about that because it's really hard to do math without like writing any of this down or paying attention. 
Well, then no points for anyone right now. We'll see what happens. With the final question, Joe, coming to you first for this one from Austin Janicki. Will the top scorer for the USMNT at the World Cup be a striker, a winger, or a midfielder? I really wanted to go a little extra here and say center back and just have Walker Zimmerman eating on set pieces. (laughs) I know what you mean. I I really thought about that because it's not clear, right? There's Mm -hmm. no dominant goal scorer here. Uh, My answer is winger, just because I think there's more talent in the winger pool than maybe any other part of the field. But it's probably not going to be a central midfielder because Musa's not really a goal scorer, at least not with VAR involved. Tyler Adams is not a goal scorer. Luca De La Torre is not. Acosta maybe nicks one from a free kick, but even then I'm not so sure. McKenney is the one player in that space who I think could do a job and get another goal or, or, or get a couple of goals in this tournament. But it feels so much more likely that it's it's a winger, Pulisic getting hot, Aronson staying hot, Gio Reyna getting fit and doing damage. I mean, it feels much more likely to me that it's one of those players. Or, and the best thing that could happen here would be it's, it's Josh Argent's redemption tour or it's some number mm. nine who comes in and scores four goals in the group stage. And we all feel just ridiculous for having talked about this for so long about the USMNT's number nine problems. I want that to happen. I do think it will be a winger, though, to answer Austin's actual question. Yeah if, yeah, if you're playing the percentages, I think it has to be a winger. But my, my pick is Weston McKinney. So I guess my, my answer is a midfielder, but not particularly because there's a lot of, there's a lot of different options in midfield to score goals. It's just, uh, I think, Weston McKinney. I don't know, I just, I just get the mm-hmm. feeling he's become a bit of a clutch player for the US and he'll end up in attacking positions in Qatar. And we've obviously seen him get on the, uh, get on the end of set pieces and... So I think my uh, yeah my my actual pick is Weston and and my wild card pick is uh, is Brendan Aronson just because it feels like he's got a lot of momentum at the moment and it feels like he's going to start games in Qatar. Joe mentioned the U.S. or a specific player scoring four goals. I would love for the United States to score four goals in a group stage. I I don't know how likely that is against some of these opponents. So I also think that combined with some of the attacking rotation we might see did have me leaning towards the midfielder. Graham, I think Weston McKinney is a great shout. I also did find myself leaning towards Jordan Pifuck starting against Wales, at least right now. So if he were to get a goal there, and then maybe he sits out against England and then comes in late when we need a result against Iran and makes something happen, I think there's a chance that two goals is enough to be your leading goal scorer, at least in the group stage. Who knows how far the U.S. goes in the knockout round. Uh, so I could see it being, being Jordan Pifuck, but I think more likely is that it's either uh, Christian Pulisic or Weston McKinney. So I will say winger. I will agree with Joe. I'll say winger, mostly likely, but I like the central midfield shout. Graham, and I also had a cheeky idea that maybe it's Anthony Robinson, so we get two goals from I him. I thought or, about that too. Uh, or, yeah. uh, maybe he'll get maybe our leading assist getter or something like that. But I think all this speaks to some uncertainty about the U.S. attack, specifically who will score the goals, but we have faith that there is plenty of depth there, at least in a couple different positions. And I would say we've talked about a lot of those players, a lot of that depth on today's episode. I think we've done a good job of talking about many of the Americans abroad. So, Graham, Graham Ruthven, Thank you very much for your contributions today. I'm going to say you ended in a draw with Joe, eight to eight. <laughs> Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. My other pick for top scorer was uh, Malik Tillman. But he's uh, he's uh, he's going to be obviously involved in the Old Firm Derby. I'm I'm joking, by the way. I'm not. I don't think Malik Tillman is <laughs> going to be a top scorer for the USMNT in Qatar. But I think he might be on the plane. There's a chance. And I'm wondering which one of you is coming over for the Old Firm Derby this this weekend with uh, with Greg um, because. I can show you around. I can show Greg around. I hope he likes uh, pies and iron brew. (laughs) Uh, Joe, uh, Graham ending his show by uh, speaking negatively about Malik Tillman by not speaking positively about him might cost him a point. We'll see how this (laughs) plays out. But uh, any other closing thoughts from you? 
I think Malik Tillman should absolutely be in Qatar. I think he's the greatest soccer player of all time. He's, he's just a revelation. Joe wins the show. The dynamics <laughs> Joe wins the show. <laughs> no. Uh-oh. In conclusion, Graham, I'd love to come to Scotland. You and me can hang out with Greg, eat some pies. That that all sounded great, um, but I did win. So suck it, I guess. Um, I, I can't believe I lost this by not defending Malik Tillman or not... not advocating enough for Malik Tillman <laughs> you after weeks just of saying enough. that he should be on the plane. <laughs> Them's the breaks, Graham. Them's the breaks. It's almost like this is entirely arbitrary. Uh, so points to you both. Don't say that. Listeners, Don't thank you that. so much for listening. Points to you as well. Uh, we will talk to you again many more times this week for now. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>